Hello again, everybody. Welcome to Good to Know Shreveport Bossier. This is a podcast that showcases all the good things happening around our community. My name is Jeff Bynford. This is my uh, cohort and co-host, Paul Reeser, the former president of the Reeser Group and Sonic Management Company, a member of the Committee of 100. He's a board member. And every week we focus on all the economic development, community growth, and other topics about initiatives having positive impacts on our community. We'll have new episodes every other Wednesday, and you can find Good to Know wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have another special guest today. Paul, I'll let you do the honors on this introduction. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, because this is a super impressive guest, as per usual. Oh, yeah. But uh, Dr. Lauren Scott is our guest today, and he is an internationally respected economist. Uh, he has, he's the president and founder of Lawrence C. Scott and Associates, which is a 35-year-old firm that provides economic consultant uh, and speaking services to a wide range of clients, including BP, British Petroleum, ExxonMobil, uh, Energy Corporation, J.P. Morgan, Capital. You get the idea. Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Big time, folks. Uh, he's been appointed to the Economic Advisory Board of the United States Council on Competitiveness. Uh, a group made up of CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, university presidents, and uh, he's been interviewed on MSNBC, I'm Almost There, CNBC, Bloomberg TV, and perhaps most notably, Good to Know Shreveport Motion. And you cut out a lot. You cut out a lot on the intro. I mean, the man is impressive. <laughs> we can talk a long time just about his accolades, but I just wanted to let you know, because we're going to be talking about economic yeah. development, how uh, important and how <laughs> uniquely suited our guest today yeah. is to talk about that. Dr. Scott, welcome. It's a pleasure to uh, get to uh, talk to you, sir. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to folks in North Louisiana again. I was just up there a couple of weeks ago and just had a great time with some good friends I have. Uh, look, I've been around, uh, I've worked at this television station for eh, not quite eight years, but ever since I came here, I've heard the name Dr. Lawrence Scott. Never met you, never had an opportunity to interview you, but I've talked about you every year when you come out with your annual, your wow. annual, your annual forecast. So uh, it's a real pleasure. And just to get into this, Talk to us about that annual forecast and what goes into it and how you arrive at the conclusions you do. Sure. Uh, I've been doing this for, uh, I shouldn't tell you how long it'll give my age away, but anyway, I've been doing this for about 40 years. And uh, what I do is, you know, some people, when they do economic forecasts, they will uh, sit in their offices and look at Bureau of Labor Statistics data and then use a little computer to come up with numbers. Uh, I do some of that, but what I really do is I spend quite a bit of time, especially in the month of July and August, I make calls all around the state to about probably 200 different economic developers, major employers. Uh, I call the port, for example, of Caddo Bozier. I call the people at BRF. I call the people out of the Cyber Research Center, the people at uh, uh, Barksdale, who the major employers are, trying to see what's going on out there. And on the basis of these calls, that is the primary tool that I use for coming up with the forecast. So we put out a, a document that's about 180 pages long this year. Uh, we have forecasts for each of the nine metropolitan areas of the state. And then in the back of the report, you can uh, see a history of, say, the Shreveport, uh, the Bossier Caddo area uh, from 1984. Because you can kind of see you know, how things have fluctuated around why your employment has behaved the way it has, who the major players were, et cetera. 
Well, you put out a, uh, a report this year on North Louisiana that's getting quite a bit of attention up north. I'm seeing uh, news reports on it. I'm seeing articles, articles in these uh, newspapers. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about this. You call it a basket full of good news for North Louisiana Shreveport Bossier. <laughs> So that's pretty exciting. And that, that in itself is good news. <laughs> yes. So how, how well, do we come actually, to that conclusion? it is really a kind of a turn uh, for your area of the state because if you look at your area of the state after peaking back when we had the height of the uh, Hainesville shell boom that you experienced back in 08 and 09 or so, uh, there have been a combination of things that have happened that caused your employment to start to decline. And the good news is, I mean, there's all kinds of evidence out there, I think, that you're going to start to really turn that around, start to grow again over the next two years. And uh, actually, we think you'll be the second fastest growing area of the state over the next two years, right behind Lake Charles. And the primary reason Lake Charles is out there, one of the many reasons Lake Charles is out there, is they are recovering from two major hurricanes, a major flood, and winter storm Uri. So they kind of went down a B, now they're coming back up the other side of the V, mm -hmm. and that's helping their employment number to be really big. But you guys have just some fundamentally really strong uh, pieces of evidence out there that you're going to have a good two years going forward. Can you can you share some of those pieces? Give me a couple that uh, that, that are uh, real sure. Positive. I mean, you start start what's going on at the Port of Cato Bossier. I mean, there's just about every employer out there is engaged in a significant uh, capital expansion. I think we listed at least two hundred million dollars in capital expansions out there. Their employment is supposed to grow from about 1,580 to over 1,700 over the next two years. And frankly, right now, there are a couple of major projects that are uh, that are just close to being announced, if, if we can land them, that could really be big for the port. Over at the Cyber Research Center, uh, you have uh, General Dynamics is just already at 1,400 people, and they're continually growing. Uh, they're expected to probably double their workforce over the next five years. That, so that's, a, and they're getting ready to open up the Louisiana Tech Research Institute there, which will add 400 jobs. Uh, BRF has just announced three new firms that they brought into the area, which mm -hmm. is really, really very good. Yep. Kind of an interesting area for you to watch over the, over the next couple of years is what's gonna happen in the gaming side. Now, again, this is important because if you look at your gaming employment, it has been declining since about 2014 because of the competition from the Indian casinos in Oklahoma. As a matter of fact, when COVID hit, you actually lost a casino. You lost Diamond Jacks, completely shut down. And for a while, it looked like you're going to lose a license in the area, too. You know, they, uh, I think it was Pinnacle Gaming was looking at moving that license down to uh, Slidell. And now uh, it is back in Shreveport, and I think there's going to be a meeting with the Gaming Control Board over the next, uh, over the next month or so where this group foundation gaming is talking about taking that license uh and uh spending a lot of money to build a boutique uh casino on land all right which they can now do as a result of some legislation passed in 2018. so there's more jobs there uh and let me mention one last one here and sure. that's uh barksdale air force base which has been just mm. kind of flat to declining a little bit over the, since about 2015. Well, now you've got about $200 million in uh, infrastructure going on out there to prepare for this new weapons uh, generation facility. And that's going to be another $200 million to build that thing once it's, uh, once it's ready to go. 
And there's going to be new jobs coming in associated with that, both civilian and military. So instead of being kind of a drag on the economy, not very big, but somewhat of a drag, Mm -hmm. now you're going to see Barksdale start to add jobs. So they're just, like I say, there's a basket full of good things. I (laughs) I haven't mentioned some individual firms that are also growing in your area. Well, there's a lot of different areas. you, You talked about the... Uh, cyber corridor, the, the fact that we're getting a lot more technical jobs, but I think I've been seeing a lot more activity in the Haynesville Shale lately, and our prices are so competitive here compared to overseas. How is that going to affect the economy up here? Yeah, I mean, that's another big area we shouldn't overlook. As a matter of fact, if you went back about, I don't know, three years ago, there was only 16 rigs operating in the Haynesville Shale. Today, there's 45. And part of that is the fact that the price of natural gas is so much higher now than it was. You know, it had been around two to three dollars per million BTU. In today's paper, it was five dollars, and it has been as high as seven or eight dollars per million BTU. So that alone is going to cause people to come into this play, which is a very productive play. But the second reason you should be very optimistic about Haynesville is the fact that because of what's going on in Europe. There, there is just a big move down the southern part of the state, the southern and the southeastern part of Texas, to build these LNG export facilities to That's take natural gas, yeah. liquefy natural liquefy, gas, yeah, change yeah. it to about one six hundredth of its volume, send it to Europe, where they will regasify it and you know use it for cooking and heating. Well, the Hainesville Shell is the closest shale play uh, natural gas source to. Uh, to these LNG facilities. Their next closest one is the Permian Basin, which is out in West Texas, considerably further away. And so not only do you have more rig count, but there are also a number of natural gas pipelines. I, I think uh, we report at least six in the uh, in the Louisiana Economic Forecast, six new pipelines bringing natural gas from the Haynesville down to those LNG export facilities. Well, look, everything you just talked about is sounds great. It's all positive stuff and happy to hear it. Um, and it's all good news for our area. But I, I'm going to ask you a couple questions now that are kind of downers. Uh, okay. One is this area has been losing population. The entire state has been losing population. What can be done to reverse that trend? Well, uh, and I think most economists would agree that create more economic opportunities which is what you're going to be doing over yeah. the next two years, as it turns out. Um, and so, um, you know, our state, um, if you look at all the 50 states in the United States and look at how well they have recovered from the COVID shutdown uh, that occurred back in 19, in 2020, okay, uh, what you'll discover is that among the states, we're, we're, we're 49th in terms of recovery. Uh, we have not done near as good a job as most of the other states have. And you know, a lot of people say, well, that's because our, we're losing population, our economy sucks. That's not it at all. <laughs> what has happened since uh, the COVID shutdown is we have been through three very serious hurricanes. We have been through winter storm Uri, and we've been through a major flood in the Lake Charles area. That's five major natural disasters. Mm-hmm. And that has kept us from recovering. Now, the other side of the coin is the national economy, I think, is about to go into recession. And, you know, aren't we in recession already? No, no, I would argue we're not. I know that we had two straight quarters, which is the typical definition of a recession is two straight quarters in which real gross domestic product declines. 
But if you look at those two quarters uh, in the first quarter and the second quarter of this year, when we were negative, uh, I think uh, they will not declare that's a recession. That was because of a very weird statistical fluke uh, that we can talk about if you want to. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, well, there's a group called the National Bureau of Economic Research. They are charged with declaring when a recession hits and when when we come out of it. I don't think they're going to declare that. The weird thing that happened was if you go back one quarter, you go back to the fourth quarter of uh, 2021, uh, what happened during that quarter was we had this enormous growth in real gross domestic product. It grew 6.9%. I mean, a really good quarter is considered to be 35 It was 6.9%. You say, well, what happened in the fourth quarter? Well, what happened in the fourth quarter was all the retailers getting ready for Christmas season, were worried about having enough product on the shelves. Mm-hmm. So what they did, did was they really built up their inventories during that time period, mm-hmm. getting ready for Christmas. However, what happened was folks like me who have grandchildren were also worried about the supply chain issue. So what we did is we did our Christmas shopping in September and October. Right. <laughs> okay. So what happened at the end of the uh, the fourth quarter, suddenly these retailers ended up with all these inventories, yeah. which is something that actually causes real gross domestic product to go up. As a matter of fact, of that 6.9 percentage point increase, 4.9 percentage points of it was all those excess inventories. Okay? okay, And so what happened, guess what, over the next two quarters is suddenly those retailers had to get rid of those inventories. And so the change in inventory number went negative. For two straight quarters, big time, and as a result, that pulled the real gross domestic product numbers down to negative. Now, that's a long technical definition, but yeah. I think it's the primary reason the uh, the NBER, the National Business Economic Research, is not going to declare that a recession. They're going to say it was it was a statistical anomaly. They'll look behind it and they'll say, "Hey, personal consumption spending was still growing, business investment spending was still growing, employment was still growing." But a recession. Okay? You, you it's just, weird, but I think that's what's going on. Yeah, you just used the word I was going to throw out there. Is this weird. an anomaly? Is this anything you've seen before? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I ever have seen. Uh, generally speaking, if you look at this big pie that represents real gross domestic product, uh, the change in business inventories is typically a tiny part of that pie. And, um, and historically, it hasn't really mattered all that much. I don't think I've ever known a time when it mattered like it mattered this time. So I think it was a historically weird thing. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is historically unusual for us to have two straight quarters of decline in real gross domestic product and not call it a recession. But I right. think that's what they're going to do this time. Wow. That is interesting. So all yeah. the crying that we've heard for the last couple of months about we're already in a recession, you don't you don't believe that to be true? I, I don't believe that'll be the case. And another indicator, by the way, is what's been happening to employment nationwide. And employment uh, now, now, by the way, you can sometimes go into recession and employment still grows nationally. It's a little, it's a little unusual. But sometimes it happens in the first part of the recession. Mm-hmm. But right now, the employment is growing, grew right straight through all four of the all all uh, all six months of those two quarters. So, I, again, I think that's just one of those cases where they're going to say it's not a recession. 
So as, as an economist, you're giving us a lot of insight that we, we look at headlines and we ignore the, the behind the scenes insight that you pull out as an economist, which is why we bring on the world-renowned <laughs> economist. Uh, uh, world but when you talk about- I need uh, to raise my rates if I'm worried about <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're in a recession here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. But you know, as you talk about employment, I know that's a big challenge. It's interesting because there is a, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of jobs seem to be unfilled and yet unemployment is low. So, you know, we talk about the great recession, I mean, the great resignation. Uh, how do we get people to go back to work or to want to come back to work? Yeah, or is I mean, that that's really a, real, a problem? Is there real, something else that I don't know there? Yeah, all these, all these phone calls that I make around the state, especially when I'm talking to businesses, and it doesn't matter what area of the state you're in, it doesn't matter what business you're in. Everybody's complaining about the fact they have job openings, but they can't get people to come to work. I think part part of that has to do with something that happened right around right after the COVID uh, uh, the COVID shutdown. You remember that the federal government sent out two major rounds of stimulus checks plus PPP PPE checks. I know, mm -hmm. uh, but those uh, I forgot the title. Now. <clears throat> those checks to businesses. Well, if you look at a graph of personal income in the United States, it's kind of growing, growing, growing. It's suddenly you get these two huge spikes. Well, people received all that money. They did not spend all that money. If mm -hmm. you look, kind of look at the data, there was a, also a big spike in savings in the United States. Uh, savings increased something like $2.3 trillion. So people didn't spend all that money. Part of it because they couldn't get out and there's no place to go spend it. Right, true. Uh, but they didn't spend all that money. And so there's a set of people out there that right now are looking at a choice between continuing to live off that savings. And by the way, that savings has dropped from two, three down to about one already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They've been into that saving. Or they can go to a relatively, maybe a relatively crummy job. Okay. A mm -hmm. dirty job or a job that's not very interesting, not very much fun. Um, and so I think there's a bunch of people out there right now that are living off of that savings. And there now that savings is going to be probably gone by right. around the first quarter of next year. And you're going to find it a whole lot easier to find workers. Mm -hmm. That's part of the problem. But honestly, another part of the problem is that, uh, again, it's just the way people naturally think. If you look at the, in, the income distribution in the United States, and you look at the five tiers, you have the first quintile at the, the, the quintile at the top, which is the richest people, and down at the bottom you have the uh, the, the lowest quintile, the poorest people. Now, if you look at if you look at the bottom two quintiles, the poorest and the one right above them, here's what you're going to discover: you're going to discover that that bottom quintile, only 36% of the people participate in the workforce. Okay. Whereas right above them, that second quintile, the second lowest, 96% of the people participate in the workforce. Hmm. However, if you look at the resources available to both groups, there is so much money being given to that bottom group through transfer payments hmm. that the difference in resources available between the two groups is only about 4%. Wow, really? So, what you've, so you think about incentives here. Uh, and, and, and part of our problem down here is that all those transfer payments, most of those transfer payments have no work requirement associated yeah. with them. And so you're here, you're, you're faced with this choice. Do I stay in this bottom group and 
we either live off the transfer payments. We're talking about around $45,000 in transfer payments, according to uh, one study I saw that by uh, uh, mm-hmm. former Senator uh, 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 lost his name, but uh, there's a former senator who's also a, was an economist at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, um, he, you're faced with this choice. Do, do I work in a do I just continue to live off these transfer payments or do I move up to the next group where I'm mainly, you know, I'm going to be working in not very pleasant jobs quite often and not really high wage jobs, sometimes only minimum mm-hmm. wage. Sometimes, yeah. you know, I'm talking to the, the shipbuilders down in uh, South Louisiana where it's, you know, you have to work outside. It's hot. It's dirty. And so they just make this rational choice that, you know, once we've made this decision, there's going to be no work requirements in that bottom percentile and to receive transfer payments. Uh, we created a, I'll say a, a kind of a bad incentive, if you like, for getting people back in the workforce. So I think I that's agree. part of the reason why they're not able to get folks right now. Is, yeah. uh, is I think and I think I think this is going to loosen up a little bit again by the time we get to the first quarter, and we'll we'll see. But right now, it's a real problem. Well, it's a great opportunity for people who uh, who are trying to hire folks as uh, through necessity. Eventually, a lot of people are going to have to go back to work. And uh, as employers need to create a better place, a great environment for people to come work for, so you don't yeah. lose them, so, to reduce this churn. So it's an opportunity. Sure, and one of the key, and one of the key ways they're going to do that is, that, and any economist will tell you, if you got a shortage or something, you raise the price. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to have to. They're going to do. You're going to watch them doing two things. You're going to watch them raising wage rates, because that's that's how you entice more people to come in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see them raising wage rates. The second thing you're going to see them doing is starting to substitute capital for people. And so, you know, I was giving a speech in Lake Charles the other day, and I stopped by. I was a little early, so I stopped by a McDonald's to get a uh, to get a, a cup of coffee, and I didn't deal with the person. I went up to a mm-hmm. kiosk. Yeah, you know, they're letting kiosks do this work. Uh, you look behind the counter at Burger King. Hamburgers are no longer flipped by people. Buns are not toasted by people. It's done by machines. And mm-hmm. so, you're going to start seeing the substitution of machines for people as a way of dealing with this workforce shortage thing. Uh, I go to a restaurant now, and sometimes you don't even get a menu. You get a <laughs> thing that you photograph on your yeah. Yeah. Get the phone, code. and yeah. then you order there without even dealing with a waiter at all until the food shows up. Yeah, mm-hmm. call me old-fashioned. I, I, like, I like waiters and menus. <laughs> I like waiters, and I like menus, too. That's the way I like to, Absolutely. I like to do it. Yeah. yeah. So... We're heading into an election season. I mean, it's not far off. Uh, inflation, as we know, is spiking very high, even though we're told that it's not. Um, so how, how does everything tie together here? What influences what the most? Does the inflation affect the outcome of the election? Or do we wait till the election's over and see if that's going to push inflation down? Well, I mean, uh, it, inflation is definitely going to uh, influence the election because whether we like it or not, I, mean, I think a, a Democrat, Bill uh, Clinton, once said, uh, "It's it's it's the it's the economy, stupid. Yeah. It's, uh, it's how the economy's doing, and it's how you're if when you drive up to the pump and you look at how much you're paying for gasoline, that influences you. Inflation influences you." And by the way, the primary reason we're, I think we're going to have a, 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 a recession in uh, 2023 is because the Federal Reserve System has got to do something about inflation. They, that's one of their calls. That's one of their mandates. They have to try to keep inflation down around the 2 to 3% range, and it's been around 8 
It's over eight now. Wow. And so when they do that, there's two tools that they use. The tool that you hear about the most and the public hears about the most is they're going to raise interest rates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they have done that. Okay. And anytime you raise interest rates, there are certain sectors of the economy that get nailed by that. And that is mainly durable goods. Uh, people quit, you know, if you look at some forecast I've seen, the single family housing start expected to decline 20% over the next two years. Well, if you're in the wood industry, uh, if you're Royal Mart down there in the, in the plywood and the Orient Strand Board industry, you're already starting to see declines in the price of your product, as it turns out. Uh, so home prices go down, which means appliances go down, which means furniture goes down. Automobile industry is going to be an interesting area to watch because historically, when we have a combination of high interest rates and and, and recession, the automobile industry gets creamed, right, as you naturally right. expect. Now, some groups think that's not going to happen this time because there's such a supply chain problem and there's such a buildup of demand for cars out there. Some some folks think you'll actually see the automobile industry grow right straight to this. I don't really think so. I think you're going to see even that sector get hit. So higher interest rates means interest sensitive part of the economy is going to start to shrink, which means the economy starts to go down. But the other thing that's going to go on is the thing the general public doesn't know very much about, doesn't hear much about, and that's what the Fed's going to do in terms of reducing the money supply directly. What they're going to do is they're going to go to the financial sector, to the banking sector primarily, and they are going to sell them bonds. They're going to give them something that is not money, bonds, and they're going to take something away from them that is money. They're going to take money away from the banks by selling them bonds. And what that does is that creates a multiplier effect of shrinking in the money supply. And anytime you shrink the money supply less, like that, there's less loans to loan out um, that, to make. That just tends to also cause the economy to shrink. So it's this attack on inflation, I think, that's going to cause the economy to go to a recession as we get into 2023. It won't be a very deep recession or very long one, but I think in response to fighting inflation, you're just going to have to see. Uh, uh, I, I don't think we're going to get a soft landing. I think we're going to go down below zero. Well, was this, uh, this the current inflation? Was this artificially made? I mean, when this administration came into office, inflation was <clears throat> about 2% or maybe less. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, they made the moves they made, and wham, bam, here we are at like 86 um, yeah, well, I think it's a combination of things. Um, uh, my great mentor in economics, Milton Friedman, Nobel laureate in economics, now deceased, uh, once said, uh, hey, inflation is just too much money chasing too few goods and services. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what has been happening, what was happening, well, first of all, the too few goods and services, supply chain thing has caused us to have too few goods mm -hmm. and services, right? And so now instead of paying uh, you know, $1,000 below MSRP, we're now paying MSRP maybe plus for an automobile. All right, so that's, that's so supply chain has, has impacted too. But the other thing is the Federal Reserve System during the COVID shutdown did exactly the opposite of what they're doing now. They went to the financial sector and they, they, they bought bonds from them and they took those bonds and they put them what we call on their balance sheet, okay? And so what they were doing is they were they were taking money from banks, something from banks that is not money. They were taking bonds from them and giving them money. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look mm -hmm. at the Fed's balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet just went up dramatically in the last three or four years, which means they were pumping a lot of money into the economy. 
Mm-hmm. Places just too much money chasing too few goods and services. Yeah. Plus, and so, then of course the president passes some major spending bills, right. pumping a lot of money out there. So the combination of those things that led us to where we are right now. And so now the Fed has to do exactly the opposite, and they have to uh, start. They have to start uh, reining in the economy, and that's what's going to cause a recession. I think. Well, how concerning are all those trillion-dollar spending bills? A trillion here, a trillion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. We've real gone money. up from a millions uh, to trillions. And, well, uh, that's, well, that's concerning to me for a lot of reasons. Um, reason number one is it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is silly. I mean, if you look, come on. Mm-hmm. If you look at the legislation, it has virtually almost nothing, virtually nothing to do with fighting inflation. It has a lot to do with pumping a lot more money into the economy uh, to uh, advance the green agenda, uh, especially to work, you know, to work on carbon capture, yeah. uh, to mm-hmm. finance carbon capture, to finance uh, companies that are uh, building components for electric cars and that sort of thing. It's huge, huge amounts of money coming in for that purpose. Uh, so there, again, it's a lot of money being pumped in the economy. Place is just too much money chasing too few goods and yeah. services. Well, guess what the impact's gonna be? Yeah. Well, that, that brings up for me an in, an, a question that's interesting to me. Jeff, you may not care, but- uh, <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> well, you, you, just, you just mentioned electric vehicles and, and what the government is doing to incentivize people to buy electric vehicles. And I always found out when I had business that if I, put too much emphasis bonusing one area, it it caused a problem somewhere else. And I'm wondering, what is the unintended consequence of trying to put too much emphasis on electric vehicles, or is there? Because uh, I know Tesla has an extra 10,000 vehicles they didn't sell this year, last quarter, but, but when you start uh, creating all these batteries, and w- what happens with that? Is there an unintended consequence? Well, I mean, I. I generally think that when the government decides to favor one industry over another, uh, instead of just letting the market work it out, uh, I think you always end up worse off. Personally, I really think that mm-hmm. I think if electric vehicles are a good thing, mm-hmm. then by golly, let them go out there compete with uh, in, right. the internal combustion engine, uh, and and just get, let the let the cards fall where the cards fall. That's 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 what I believe. I just don't think it's a very good idea to have an industrial policy at the federal level where you incentivize one industry over another because you're candidly we're not smart enough to uh, to run the economy. Uh, when you start getting the government involved with running the economy, you're moving uh, along a spectrum that you don't want to move along because you always end up worse off. I think rather than better off. Uh, I mean, we could spend a lot of time just talking about the whole idea behind why are we even thinking about electric cars anyway uh is is the green uh is the uh is the is the um is climate change a real threat or not a real threat we could spend another hour yeah. talking about that I'm, I'm i'm a person who actually likes to look at the data and mm. and look at a long history of data not just look at the history from 75 forward but look at the history from really 2000 bc forward and look at whether are we in a really crisis situation, existential threat or not. As a matter of fact, my my basic feeling is the existential threat to our uh, world economy is not climate change; it's climate policy. Oh. And, and as a matter of fact, Europe's about to find that out with a vengeance this is coming winter. I mean, if all I mean, the comments on the face of the earth that have gone whole hog into the green movement is yeah. in Europe. 
they, they no fracking. They outlawed fracking. They said we're going to move to wind and solar. And yeah, right. right now, the only place they could get natural gas for the most part is from Russia. Yep. And Russia was providing it was has been for providing them with forty five percent of their natural gas. Well, and you? now Putin has them right. I mean, Putin has control yes, over Europe. And and so what's going to happen? I, I think there's something kind of fundamental that's about to happen this coming winter about everybody's attitude towards climate change, and that is you're going to see uh, just catastrophic stuff getting ready to happen in Europe because they're not going to be enough, they're getting ready to go into winter. Yep. And by the way, Europe is not even with Atlanta or Dallas. Europe is above Toronto. I mean, wow. Europe is in yeah. Canada. I mean, they're talking about people country. freezing to death this year. There's, freezing to death. They don't have enough natural gas. So the policymakers there have a choice. We either let our people freeze to death or we take natural gas totally away from industry and keep our people warm. Wow. So there is one site I showed the people at the conference this year at the port. There's one site in Lugoshaven, Germany, where BASF has... 39,000 people working in chemical plants. They have 200 chemical plants at this one site. And uh, that is bigger than the Louisiana chemical industry combined. Okay, this is a huge site. And right now they're talking about shutting that sucker down for the winter because they don't wow. have enough natural gas to run the plants. Unreal. And to make, they, they, you make stuff out of natural gas, of course. Well, well I mean, 39,000 people get laid off, then that mm-hmm. means there's a multiplier effect. That's probably 160,000 people that get laid off. Yep. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Within that plant, a number of those 200 plants are making ammonia fertilizer, which is made out of natural gas. Well, guess what's happening? They're shutting down fertilizer plants Mm -hmm. all over Europe because they're having to pay $71 per million BTU for natural gas. Well, we're paying seven. Yeah. There's no way. And then so we're just not gonna be enough worldwide supply of ammonia fertilizer going forward. And the food supply starts dwindling. Food supply is gonna get hit, so it's gonna be starvation. I really think what's going to happen is we're going to get through this terrible winter in Europe, and everybody's going to start to say, wait a minute, <laughs> this, is, this is stupid. Yes. I mean, what, what have we been doing? Let's go back and rethink this. We've been moving too hard towards uh, wind and solar, yeah. and uh, we, need to start, we need to start thinking about fracking. Matter of fact, Germany's already thinking about fracking. Uh, open up and start to frack for natural gas in their country because they they desperately need it. So does there so need to be a balance? I think what's going to happen to Europe this winter is going to totally change the world's attitude hmm. towards this climate change yeah. issue. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I really do think you're right. Listen, this is fascinating stuff. We could talk to you for a couple more hours. Uh, would you come back again at another time and continue mm. with some of this stuff? Uh, y'all going to double the fee I'm getting paid this time? <laughs> well, sure. Yes, yes, I am well, going I'll to do that. that. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> You'll double. But, but before he wraps us up. Uh, Two times zero still is zero. That's right. Yeah, I got, yeah, I'm good enough at economics to know that. <laughs> so, uh, Lauren, you're so uh, generous with your time and your knowledge. I really appreciate it. How do people reach out? I know you do 50 to 70 speaking engagements a year. You, you, you speak all over the world. Uh, if someone wants to engage with you, how do they reach out? Uh, they go to uh, www.laurencscottassociates, www.laurencscottassociates.com, mm-hmm. and you can do two things there. If you contact numbers, but also if you want to buy a copy of the Louisiana Economic Forecast, that 180-page document, there's a way to do it with your credit card at that site. 
All right. Uh, fascinating stuff, Dr. Scott. It was a real pleasure. Uh, wow. It was educational yeah. and entertaining. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, good. Well, I had a good time talking to you folks. So I hope we get to do it again. All Thank right. Well, much. we do too. We appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Dr. Scott, and thank you for joining us for this podcast of Good to Know Shreveport Bozer, brought to you by the Committee of 100 and KPBS-TV. Remember, tell all your friends and uh, colleagues about the podcast. We'll have new content every other Wednesday morning. And for more information, you can check us out at goodtoknowsb.com. So have a good day. Tell everybody about the podcast. And remember, all of this is good to know.